0: We started last week um, with this idea and this question of "Now what?" um, Which are there's those times in every single person's life, and no one is immune from it. That you will have those moments when things have not gone your way, um, when life is being unfair, perhaps when you're reaping the consequences uh, of your actions and of your decisions. Um, Those moments when you realize that all of your hopes and dreams and planning were no match for the reality of what life was going to be throwing at you. Um, When it's, when those around you have failed you, when it seems like the world has turned its back on you, when, when, when it's clear that you are never going to fulfill your dreams and you wonder if God himself has abandoned you, you have those moments where you just sit And the only thing you can do is ask, now what? Where do I go from here? Now, luckily, you and all of us in this room, we are not the first one to have these moments. Um, Everybody who has ever lived has had those now what moments. And last week, we began to look into the Old Testament, the story of Israel's second king, King David, and uh, he had more of these now what moments than he probably would have cared to have had. Um, he seemed to make a career out of these moments. And what we found last week, as we began looking at some of these moments, is that his foundation, this idea that he wrapped his mind around at a, a very young age and carried throughout his rule as king, his, his foundation was that his hope and his trust was in God. In, in fact, he, um, he wrote in the book of Psalms, he wrote this, he wrote, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. Guide me in your truth and teach me for you are my God, my savior. My hope is in you all day long. And that sounds really simple. And that's easy for us to just say. But as a king, there was not a shortage of places for him to place his trust. I mean, it would have been easy for him to place his trust in his riches, in his position as king, in his influence, in his power, in his skills and the things that he did well. He had a plethora of choices of things in which to place his trust. But when it came down to it, he knew, and he, he knew that his hope and his trust rested in no one else and nothing else than God. And that, that was what we looked at last week as that being the foundation of David's approach to these. Now, now when we find ourselves in these moments, where things can't be going more wrong. And we're left with that question of now what? There, there, there's a tendency for us to have a few very specific feelings. In those moments, we feel angry, we feel isolated, and we feel afraid. And the ways of God, it's weird how this works, but the ways of God and the principles of God and the things that he would like us to do never seem more unappealing or more irrelevant than when you are feeling angry, isolated, and afraid. They just don't make sense. And these three conditions, angry, isolated, and afraid, these three conditions have the power and the ability to undermine even the most devout and dedicated Christians in this room. And they can drive us to do things that we will look back on with shame and with regret. These three conditions, can cause us to just blast right through every moral and ethical boundary that we have set up for ourselves. And the reason is this, is that when we feel ourselves feeling overwhelmed and those feelings of, of being isolated and alone and anger at however we got here and afraid of what next, when we feel those things and the emotion of those things and the intensity of those things rising up inside of us, we find ourselves to, compelled to do something. That there's a tension there that we feel like we've got to do something. I've got to make something happen. Whatever it is, even if it's not the right thing, something has to be done to relieve this sense of tension. And what happens is when we get into that mode, we do the things that are most readily available, the things that maybe somehow in our minds make sense, but might not be the best thing to do. And we end up many, many times making our lives more complicated and making the problem that we're facing even worse, not better. And when we do that, we end up angrier, lonelier, and scared err. I'm not how I... <laughs> whatever the er is for afraid, afraid er. That's where we end up. Now, David, as we started looking at him last week, David had two colossal failures in his life. One he is extremely famous for. That happened when he was king and he was in his about his fifties. But the one we're going to look at today takes place much earlier than that failure. This one takes place when he's about 22 years old. And this is not his most famous failure, but this is maybe his most dramatic failure of his entire life story. Now, following the defeat of Goliath that we, we looked at last week, David becomes the most famous person in all of Israel. And the king realizes that with this fame that David has has claimed, that his influence and his power all of the sudden was huge. And it was growing bigger and bigger and bigger. And Saul was an extremely insecure person. And so this bothered him. And so he started thinking, what do I do about David? What do I do about this person that's taking the, the, the spotlight off of me? That people are now looking to him instead of looking to me. And so he concocts this plan within his mind that probably would have worked on most people. But this plan didn't work on David. And his plan was, is he decided, I want to get David into the family. Because if David is in the family, then I have control of David. And so his way that he was going to do this, get control of David by having him in the family, was he offered up to David... In all of his newfound popularity after defeating the giant, he offered up one of his daughters for marriage. Now, this is a big deal. Like people would just fall over themselves to be married into the family of the king. But David's response was, no, thank you. In fact, he actually says, I am not worthy to be the king's son-in-law. So he gets this opportunity to become a part of the family of the king and he says, no, thank you. And the people, when they saw this, this made his stock just rise even higher because they're like, wow, what kind of man turns down the opportunity to be part of the family of the king? So time goes by. David's popularity keeps rising and Saul keeps looking for a way to control and get a hold of David. Well, eventually... David, even though he had been offered one daughter and said, no, he ends up falling in love with one of Saul's other daughters and he ends up marrying her. And then after that, he becomes really close friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. And so, and so Saul ends up thinking after a little while, after David's married his daughter and he's best friends with his son, after a while watching it happen, Saul starts to think, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. Because what had began to happen was now, not only did David have all of this influence in the people of Israel for his lore of, of defeating Goliath for Israel, but now Saul watched as all of his own family members began to be drawn to David and not him. And so this this just bugged Saul, bugged him and bugged him. And he's like, this is such a bad idea. He is so influential. And now he's on the inside with this influence. And Saul's jealousy He just grows and grows and grows. So for about the next seven years or so, there was this extremely hot and cold relationship between Saul and David. There would be times that David was in Saul's favor and there would be times then that Saul wanted him dead. And Saul would never want to kill David himself. And so in those moods, when Saul wanted David dead, he would come up with just these ridiculous military maneuvers. And he would send David out on these impossible tasks, knowing on this one, when I send him out, he will not survive. He will be dead and my problem will be solved. The problem was is that David was successful. Every time Saul sent him out, David won. And what do you think that did with David's influence with the people of Israel? It just made it worse and worse and worse. And so anytime, anytime Saul was just feeling like that, just the frustration, and you know, you've been around somebody who's like angry and you're just walking on eggshells because you know you just even breathe a little bit too loud and it's gonna explode. This was how Saul was. So finally, the the frustration for Saul just builds and builds and builds. And finally, it just comes to this this culmination at dinner one one night. And dinner with the king was a big deal. Like, it was an honor. Like, if you got invited to dinner, king, it was a big deal. But during the tumultuous times between David and Saul, he would skip dinner. And this would make Saul angry. And he would ask Jonathan and ask around the table, where's David? David. Why isn't David here? And they'd come up with some kind of excuse and whatnot. And finally, finally, at one of the dinners, Saul just explodes. He just explodes. He, here's what happens. In 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 30, it says this, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. <laughs> He's like, Whoa, those are strong words. I'm not sure what Jonathan's mom did to Saul for him to say these kinds of things. Um, I hope she wasn't sitting at the table when he said that, but they definitely had some marriage issues between them that they needed to work out. But he says, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse? In other words, he's saying, all right, enough pretending. I've had enough. I'm sick of it. I know that everybody sitting at this table, enjoying my food, has sided with this shepherd boy over me, the king. He says, don't I know you've sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you. There he is. I don't know why he can't leave her mom out of this. But then he gets to the real issue. That thing that's just, eaten at him deep down inside. He says this, he says, as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, didn't even want to say his name. As long as he lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. And here's where we get to the heart of what was bothering Saul. Saul saw Jonathan as the next king and not just saw him as the next king, but saw him as the extension of his own legacy that it was going to be through Jonathan and Jonathan's rule over the nation of Israel that Saul's legacy would live on. He says, now, send someone to bring him to me for he must die. Well, Jonathan, as he had so many times, the other times when his dad tried to have David arrested, he gets out of there and he, he gets together with David and he's like, David, you got to leave. I mean, it's been bad before, but David, you got to get out of town and not just out of town. David, you need to leave the country because my father is after your head. So all of a sudden, through no fault of his own, here's David, 22 years old. And suddenly he's afraid for his life. And now he's alone because he's having to flee everyone who's around him. Now he finds himself rejected by a man that he has risked his life for over and over and over again. All of this, even though he had done nothing wrong. And as he left, he was angry, he was isolated and abandoned, and he was afraid. I mean, talk about being in a position of now what? You've, You've lost all of your standing. You're alone. You've got nothing. You can't even be in your own country. Now, here's where I would love to say, and I'm sure David would love for me to say. So here he is in this now what moment. And David handles it perfectly. So let's look at the exact way that he handles it so that we can then model our response to our now what moments after what David chose to do. But I can't do that. And the reason that I can't do that is because David panicked and David lost sight of the fact that God was with him. And as we read through the story of David, it is easy for us to, to, because we know the end, because we know the story, because we can see it from like 30,000 feet up and see the big picture and how it all goes. It's easier for us to look at David. And as we go through the story of the things that he decides to do, look at him and say, why would you do that? David, why would you make that choice? I mean, why would you abandon your ethics? Why would you abandon your morals? David, But as we look at the story of David, and it seems so clear to us, David, why would you do that? God is on your side. It's going to work out. I wonder if there aren't people watching some of us. And when we face those moments in our life, we begin to make decisions. That the people looking at us who aren't lost within the circumstances immediately surrounding us can look at us and say, why are you making that decision? Why are you choosing that thing? Don't you know? God is with you. And let's be honest, many of you can look back at some of those situations in your life and you can wonder the same thing about the choices you made. You can look and see how it all worked out and look back and be like, why did I ever think that was a good idea? Why did I make those decisions? And the answer is because you were probably abandoned, isolated, angry, and afraid And when we are feeling those emotions and feeling those things, our natural inclination is to panic and do anything to try and change the situation. And that's exactly what David did. Chapter 21, it says he did this. And David went to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. Now, in this time, uh, Israel did not own or control the land that was immediately surrounding Jerusalem, so there wasn't there wasn't really a capital city, so to speak, of Israel, and so the epicenter of Jewish worship um, was wherever the tabernacle was, which housed the Ark of the Covenant, and they would move the tabernacle around to different cities, whatever would be the safest city within the region or areas that Israel controlled, and so at this time the tabernacle was set up in a city named Nob, and the high priest was there as well. And so Ahimelech, the high priest, trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? And here's why he asked this, because every time David showed up anywhere, you could hear him coming from miles away. Because David traveled with about a thousand soldiers at all times. His soldiers began arriving long before he arrived. And now all of a sudden, here's David showing up at the temple to the high priest, looking disheveled. And it causes um, a a a uh, spidey senses to start tingling. Something's wrong here. Something's not right. David, what is going on? And then David lies. He lies to him. And the interesting thing about David lying specifically to this person in this particular location is that David was against lying. David would write about how much he loved the law of God and not lying was like one of the big 10 in the law of God. And here's David who, where he is standing at that moment could walk through a few curtains to the Ark of the Covenant that held the original copy of the law of God with the 10 on it. And here he is standing in this place, violating one of those laws that he holds dear. Why? Why would he lie? Because he was isolated, abandoned, angry, and afraid. And in those moments, the ways and the principles of God seem irrelevant and impractical. Here's what he said when the priest asked him, why are you alone? David answered. He said, the king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about this mission I'm sending you on. As for my men, I've told them to meet me in a certain place. Now, come on. That's about the level of stories my nine-year-old makes up, right? David, why are you here alone? Oh, 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 it's a secret mission. Well, David, where are all your guys? Oh, I told them to meet me somewhere. Where, David? A certain place, right? And he lies because he thought if he told the truth, a would not help him. He thought, I have to take control of the circumstances here. I have to do something to make things happen for myself. And this lie not only cost David, but ultimately, this lie would cost Ahimelech and his entire family their lives. The story continues. David speaking, he says, Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. <laughs> He comes out with this very specific number of loaves of bread he wants and then doesn't even get to the end of his sentence before he's like or whatever. Doesn't sound like a very organized secret plan. And and and, and, and Himelech is thinking this is just weird. You're by yourself. You're hungry? Like I realize you may be on secret mission, but you didn't even think far ahead enough to have something to eat. And so the priest offers the only thing that he has, which is the consecrated bread. The priest would bake, bake fresh bread every morning, set it on the altar for God. And then when they would come back the next day, surprise, God didn't eat the bread. <laughs> so then they would take the bread and the priest would eat it amongst themselves. But you had to be ceremonially clean to be able to do that. And so he tells David, like all I have is, is this consecrated bread. And there's these conditions. And so David lies to him about being able to meet the conditions to be able to eat this bread. So here's David. He's starting to layer his lies to the high priest, which begs the question, what happened? What happened to Lord? I put my hope in you all day long. What happened to Lord? I put my trust in you. What happened to that David? What happened to the David who at 15 years old was confident enough in God to march into a valley and take on a giant? Where did that guy go? Now, this is the point of the story where it gets really intense. And like, if we were watching a dramatic music, like this would be like some serious, like strings orchestra music, like welling up with the emotion below the surface because what happens next is amazing. David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? And this is kind of when Ahimelech really catches a clue. I mean, because here he is standing, talking to the most famous warrior in the nation of Israel. And he thinks you show up here by yourself. You look like you haven't slept in days. You're begging for food and you're not even carrying a weapon. David says, I I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was so urgent. (laughs) Terrible lie. Now this is when something absolutely incredible happens. David is virtually transported back in time to the very event that God used to catapult him to his fame. And if there is ever a wake up moment to be seen in the Bible, this is it. This is the, what am I doing here moment for David. This is when his eyes should have been opened. Here's the chief priest's reply to David's request for a weapon. The priest replied, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah is here. Talk about David needing to catch a clue. Can you imagine? Can you imagine standing there lying to the chief priest and he responds to you, the sword you use to remove the head of the giant is here? That day that you became the David that we all know and respect and love. And the reason that that sword was even at the tabernacle was because David, after he killed Goliath that day, he kept it as a souvenir because of course you would, right? But then when the event was over, he decided, he decided that he was going to dedicate that sword to God and give it to the temple. It was his way of saying, it was not me with this victory. It was God with this victory. I do not depend on myself. I depend only on the Lord, the God of Israel. So much significance (laughs) tied to that sword. And can you imagine what went through David's head? That as soon as the chief priest said that, and presented that sword, that in his mind, he was probably immediately back there, remembering what it was like to walk into that valley with thousands of warriors on each side of the valley, staring down on him. And what happened when he, as a clear-eyed, confident in God boy, went and killed the giant? And you can only imagine that somewhere inside of him, he had to wonder, where did that boy Go, the one who ran towards danger, not away from danger. Where's that faith? And the answer of where that faith went was fear, anger, and loneliness. These three giants have the ability to cause us to forget everything God has done for us in the past because they blind us to that and allow us only to see the chaos of the circumstances that surround us. But David's given a visual reminder. And guess what? He completely misses it. He misses it. The chief priest says, "Goliath's sword's here. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. And this would be a decision that David would come to regret and it would become a permanent part of the story of his life. David said, there is none like it, give it to me. So he lies and then he runs from crazy King Saul with a sword that was last wielded by a warrior who was defeated by a 15 year old boy. I mean, the irony is just laying so thick. He should have seen it, but he didn't. And as a result, the outcome of his actions was disastrous. But, but this is where our story really intersects with the story of David. Because when we need God the most, that ends up being the moments where we are least likely to lean in God's direction. When we need God the most, those are the moments when we find ourselves most likely to run away from God, not towards God. We opt for things that have never worked before, but yet somehow we convince ourselves they're a good idea. We opt for things that did not get us to where we are and that often leave to regret. And this is so, so easy to see in other people when they're making these kinds of decisions. There's just bad, bad, terrible decisions that are based on isolation and anger and fear. And when you watch people make those, you think, ah, that's just going to make it worse. It's going to make it more complicated. It's going to create regret. But this is so difficult for us to see in the mirror when we're in the middle of these situations. And here's why, because we convince ourselves, my situation is different. Yeah, 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 Andy, I know a lot of other people have dealt with these kinds of things, but mine's special. Mine's not like everybody else. Mine's got some uniqueness to it. And many of us get to the point where we think in our head, if God was with me, I would not be here. The fact that I'm where I am, dealing with what I'm dealing with, sitting with the question now what, clearly shows that God is not with me. But here's, here's one of the things that I've learned over the years, both in personal experience and watching others, is that it is so easy to trust God when you have nothing. <laughs> like when you're starting out and you don't have a whole lot to lose, saying that you trust God with your stuff and with your, life, that's easy. But the more you have, the more you accumulate, the more that that is at risk of being lost within your life, the more difficult it is to trust him when the things that you value begin to slip away. And instead of holding those things with an open hand, saying God is in control, we find ourselves closing our fingers around them and trying everything we can do to hang on to those things. So David closes his hands around the sword of Goliath. And it's easy to be critical of David, but we've all made stupid decisions in these kind of moments. David's decisions get even more stupid. Guess where David goes with the sword? He goes to the land of the Philistines with Goliath's sword. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good move, David. It gets worse. He went to the town of Gath. Do you know who was from Gath? Goliath. He goes strolling into Goliath's hometown as the most famous warrior of Israel. Carrying the sword of that town's son, whom he killed. And he goes to the leader of the Philistines and he says, I'm with you. I'm going to fight for you. I am going to fight against my people. And the Philistines look at him and they're like, we are not buying this. We know who you are. We are well aware of what you've done. I mean, come on, David, you're carrying his sword. So now they reject David. And now you talk about being afraid before. Now you add to being abandoned by your king who you've sacrificed your life to, no longer having a nation because you can't go back to it, being alone and hungry and afraid. You add that to now all of a sudden standing in the center of your enemies, reminding them of what you did to them because he didn't just kill Goliath that day. The entire Philistine army was slaughtered that day and he's standing there Surrounded by his enemies, not leaning on God, leaning on himself. So, talk about a what now moment. That's a what now moment. I'll tell you what now. Here's what David does. You guys should read the Bible, it's fascinating. (laughs) He pretends he's insane. He starts just drooling all over himself. He starts scratching at things with his fingernails and just starts talking gibberish and just starts freaking out in front of him. And the leader of the Philistines looked at him and was like, I've got enough crazy people around. I don't need this dude. And so they chase him out of town. And David, at 22 years old, finds himself living in a cave, isolated, angry, and afraid. Then, finally, 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 after all of that, David comes to his senses. And he goes back to his country and he finds another prophet. And he says, I want to know God's will for me. To which the prophet probably looked at him and said, David, that's great. You probably should have started there about a month and a half ago. I mean, I'm glad you're here, but David, look at everything that has gone on. But he says to the priest, he says, will you give me the counsel of God? But here's the problem. Yes, David comes to his senses. And yes, he finally begins to do the things that he should have been doing already. But the damage was already done. Word had gotten back to Saul. Saul that David had gone to see Ahimelech and that Ahimelech had fed him and armed him. So Saul travels in that direction, has the chief priest Ahimelech brought to him along with all of his family. And he says, how dare you aid and take the side of my enemy against me, your king? And Ahim like, tries to be like, no, king, 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 you don't understand. I'm not in on anything. He just showed up. Like, there was nothing I could do. I'm not against you. And besides, king, come on. Do you really think David is your enemy? If there's anybody in the nation who has put his life on the line more than David, I do not know him. He's not your enemy. He's not trying to undermine you. But Saul would have nothing of it. And so he had Ahimelech and Ahimelech's entire family killed because of David's decision and lies. But it didn't stop there. He gathered all of the priests together and he ordered his army to kill all of the priests. And his army drew a line. He said, we're not going to do that. We'll kill this guy for aiding your enemy, but we're not going to kill all the priests. And the person who was around and had reported back to Saul what had happened that he saw, he saw an opportunity and he said, well, if they're not going to do it, I'll do it. 85 priests were killed that day because of David's decisions and his lies. But it didn't stop there. It didn't stop there. Saul ordered every man, woman, and child in the city of Nob, killed. And an entire town perished that day. Word reaches David as to what has gone on, and he's just broken. Knowing that it was his decisions and his actions that caused all of that, that he was responsible single-handedly for the death of all of those people see, sometimes taking matters into your own hands, it feels good in the moment and it feels right in the moment, but it does not turn out good. Because when you take matters into your own hands, you are now responsible for the outcome. See, when you leave those things to God, he takes responsibility for the outcome. But isolation Anger and fear will push us to do things that we normally would not do. Things that we would advise others against. So here are a few questions for you to consider this week. Question one is this. What what is your isolation, anger, or fear causing you to consider that perhaps you've never considered before? Perhaps it's a decision relationally or financially Maybe you're thinking about taking some risks that you would never normally take. Maybe you're thinking about picking up a habit that maybe you've spent a long time getting rid of because it's the only way you see yourself making it through the moment. Have you ever actually seen those things work out for anybody? (laughs) Maybe perhaps this question might be more to the point. Who is your isolation, anger, or fear Causing you to consider that you shouldn't consider. Perhaps there's phone calls that you hadn't returned up to this point. And now all of a sudden you're thinking about maybe returning some phone calls. Maybe there's somebody who's made it obvious that they're interested. And you've never paid attention to it before. You've always ignored it. But now because of what's happening around you, suddenly they're a live option. Here's a wake-up question. (laughs) Who besides you do these considerations put at risk? I'll tell you the answer to that. The answer to that is the people closest to you, the people you love the most, and the people who love you. Some of you have experienced this in your life. You've experienced somebody that you were close to making decisions that not only affected them, but affected you as well. Some of you are still dealing with the consequences of other people's decisions in your life. So consider whose future hangs in the balance in your decision to give in to the impulse that's created by anger, isolation, and fear to do things you would not normally do. One one last question for you. What advice would you give you if you weren't you? (laughs) So, if somebody else was in your situation and you had no skin in the game, what would you advise them to do? Because these situations are not unique. The paths that lead us to the now what moments are well worn paths. This is why it's so easy for us to see what other people should do when they're going through it. Grown up King David would tell us, after he had some time and distance away from this failure, he would tell us, The Lord is our refuge. Not anything else or anyone else that we can turn to is our refuge. He took refuge in his ability to control the outcome when he was young. And the result was disastrous. So when you find yourself in a now what moment, when you find yourself in positions to where you feel alone, isolated, angry, afraid, not knowing what's coming, In that moment, the ways of God will probably seem completely irrelevant and impractical. But in that moment, are you gonna turn towards God or away? Because one of those leads to a refuge and a safe place. The other leaves you responsible for the outcome. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this taps into one of the innermost natural reactions that we have. That when things around us begin to seem out of control, that we do everything that we can possibly think of to wrestle control back. And Lord, in these moments when it comes to to deciding what we're going to do, God, some of the things that your word wants us to do, that your principles would have us do, God, seem so counterintuitive and seem like they, they aren't going to change the immediate situation. God, I pray that in those moments you give us the wisdom to understand the difference between seeking refuge in you and taking control of outcomes by our own power and give us the courage to take what might seem like the unnatural path. Lord, I thank you that we have these scriptures and these writings preserved from thousands of years ago so that we have the richness of seeing other people's experience in their interaction with you and in their lives. Lord, let us learn and let us grow. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being out. Look forward to next week as we continue on asking the question, now what?